Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. When we came home from the mission field, my dad and mom and my little brother and I uh, lived for a while next to my grandparents, my dad's parents, who had a farm in Canada. At that point, uh, he was a vegetable farmer, and my dad farmed with his dad for a little while. Now, going from the mission field, which is very primitive, to living next to my grandparents on the farm in Canada uh, required getting used to some new rules and some new guidelines. And my grandmother, uh, Hendrika, had some uh, peculiar uh, requirements if you went to visit her house. And uh, one of those was you never wear your shoes in the house. It didn't matter if it was my dad or her husband, my grandfather. Everybody unlaces, takes off their shoes, their work boots. And when you go in the house, you walk stocking-footed. Or there were slippers in the mudroom that you could put on. Didn't matter if it was summer. Didn't matter if it was fall, winter, spring. No shoes in the house. And of course, if you forgot and did that, it drew the ire of Grandma Hendrika. It did not make her very happy. So I learned very quickly, take the shoes off. I remember one day I asked my dad why we had to take our shoes off all the time and why when we went to mom's side of the family, they didn't make us take our shoes off. Dad explained to me it was because of where he grew up in the Netherlands. You see, they grew up on a farm, and the house was attached to the barn, kind of like in modern-day homes when you have the garage attached to your house, and you just open the door and walk out, and there's your car. Well, same thing was true in Holland, I guess. They would literally walk, open the door, and step right into the barn with the cows and the pigs. So now you understand why Grandma Hendrika did not want us keeping our shoes on, and walking into her house. She didn't want the dirt in the house. She had been used to living next to animals her whole life. And sometimes, you know, well, we don't behave any better, do we? She didn't want anything being tracked in. Well, the reason I tell you that story is because this weekend we're going to be talking about how God doesn't want us to track in dirt into his house, which raises the question, what house are we talking about? And does God live in a house? Well, if you back up and you think about God for a moment, you'll understand that God is infinite. 
and he created space like the universe, and yet space and the universe cannot contain God. And yet somehow there are times when God can be very present in one place, like Eden, the Garden of Eden. Now, a lot of times we think that God created the Garden of Eden for Adam and Eve, and I guess in a sense he did, but really the Garden was created for, for God himself. It was where he wanted to be with his creation, particularly with the man Adam and his wife Eve. And it was a good place, it says in Genesis. It was a clean place until the evil one walked in and tracked dirt, the dirt called sin, into God's space. Remember what he did? He came to the woman and to the man, and he suggested to them that the, quote, forbidden fruit, well, that was meant by God to keep them from becoming their own gods. God didn't want them eating that fruit, lest they become like God. And why wouldn't you want to be like God? Be bold, be courageous, live your life, Adam and Eve. Stop listening to him, be truly free. And of course, we know the story, even Adam took the fruit and ate it. And instead of being freed, they became enslaved to self and to sin and to Satan. Right away, they were filled with guilt and shame. And we all know we're the children of Adam and Eve because we feel that guilt and that shame in our life. And all we have to do is look around at our world and see just the, the pollution we have created with our attitudes and our behaviors and our, and our sinfulness, which gives birth to all of those things. Well, the question is, what was God going to do about it? And, of course, God banished Adam and Eve out of Eden and then God voided Eden of his own presence. And now, would God ever invite humanity back into his presence again? Would God ever want to dwell with us again? You keep reading the Bible, and the answer is yes, sort of. Look at the life of Moses. God calls Moses to deliver the people out of Egypt and then he takes them into the wilderness, and through the leadership of Moses, God says, I want you to build a portable tabernacle, a place where I will dwell, in a sense, with my people. And so Moses gives the instructions, the tabernacle is built, and in the middle of the tabernacle is the Holy of Holies. And there God's presence comes to reside among his people. However, the people can only be in proximity to God. They can't actually go into God's presence because of sin and because of God's holiness. Later on, under Solomon's leadership, God allows them to build a temple in Jerusalem. And once again, within the temple is the Holy of Holies, and there God's presence comes to rest. Again, his people are in proximity to him, but no one can actually go right into his presence. But then Ezekiel tells us in chapter 10 that things got so bad with the children of God in their disobedience and their rebellion that God says, Ichabod, that is God's presence, his holiness, his glory is removed from the temple. The temple is destroyed, of course. And then the question becomes, will God ever be with his people again? Will God ever allow them to dwell in his presence? Will humans ever be able to approach God like they did when we think about the story there in Eden? 
Well, eventually, God does come back. He comes back to the temple, but not in some glory cloud that settles over the Holy of Holies. He shows up as an infant. Imagine that. Brought in by his adopted mother, Mary, and his adopted father, Joseph, and dedicated to God. And only the elderly Simeon and Anna recognize that this infant is God in flesh coming to the temple. And then we don't read about him coming back again until he's 12 years of age. It was the time of the Passover, and Joseph and Mary brought Jesus to Jerusalem. They celebrated the Passover, and they went back to Nazareth. They were in a caravan when all of a sudden, Joseph and Mary noticed that Jesus was missing. And I cannot imagine the concern that went through their mind and hearts not being able to find God's son. <clears throat> How do you explain that to God? Well, they go back to Jerusalem, which by now had swollen in size. I mean, the general population scholars tell us Jerusalem was about 80,000 people back then, and now it's up to somewhere around 300,000 people. Talk about looking for a needle in a haystack. I mean, they searched for three days, and finally they discover him. And I want, I want you to read with me what happens. We go to the passage that describes this in Luke, and it says, Three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers. Remember, he's 12 years old, listening to them and asking questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic searching for you everywhere. Now watch this. But why did you need to search, the 12-year-old Jesus asks didn't you know that I must be where? In my father's house. But they didn't understand what he meant. Then he returned to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. And his mother stored all these things in her heart. So Jesus thinks of the temple as his father's house. Where else do you think I would be? But in my father's house house, in my Father's sacred space, have come home, so to speak. Now, the next time that we read about Jesus coming to his Father's house, he's in his early 30s, and his messianic ministry of deliverance has begun. He comes at Passover time, and again, Jerusalem is just swollen with people from everywhere, all over the Roman Empire. Jews have come to celebrate the Passover, and Jesus walks in, and in John chapter 2, verse 14, this is what he experiences. He says, in the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Now, there's nothing wrong with the activity. You have Jews who are coming from so far away, they cannot possibly bring the animals that they need for the sacrifices, so they have to buy the sacrifice. They come with foreign currency. They have to exchange that currency for the temple shekel that needs to be given. 
So it, it all makes sense, but, but it really gets under our Lord's skin and it raises his ire. It makes him righteously very angry. You say, what's going on here? Well, let's go back and look at what it says in verse 15. It says that Jesus became so angry that he made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. And we're not talking about five or six people. We're talking about a lot of people here. And he drove out the sheep and cattle and scattered the money changers' coins over the floor and turned over their tables. This is an angry Jesus. And it's uncomfortable sometimes to read that and to see that because it's not how we imagine Jesus, humble, meek, and lowly so angry that he's literally whipping the people out and turning tables over and, and so upset. What is going on here? Verse 16 lets us know. It says, then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, so now we're going to find out, get these things out of here. Stop turning, there we go again, my father's house into a marketplace. This is where we find out what is going on. See, what's been going on is that they have brought the outside marketplace, the outside business that belonged outside the temple, into the temple itself, into God's sacred space, where people are supposed to come and worship God and honor God, and reverence God, and respect God. But now it's just, a, it's just a cluttered formality. There's all kinds of stuff going on. There's no sense of reverence. There's no sense of being with God. I mean, if you think about it, it had to have been mayhem in the temple. And people standing in line, right, to exchange their money. And then you got to go to the next line where you got to buy the animal. Can you imagine the noise, the stench, the manure from the animals there in the very temple itself? And then you got to get to the next line because on that line, you got to, you know, go to the priest. The priests are all lined up and they make the sacrifice, right? And then you get in the next line because maybe there, you, you know, you want to be prayed for. You want to pray and then there's the exit. Hurry up. Move along, everybody. we got several thousand people to get through today. Oh, no wonder Jesus was upset and angry about this. They're not blessing the people. They're abusing the people, and they're abusing God. They don't get what's going on here. This is God's house. You've got to keep it clean. There's got to be respect. There's, there's got to be reverence. And what's really fascinating is if you go back to what we were talking about last weekend, you know, we, we said, you know, last week in our message, Jesus invites us to experience joy, and we said joy is something we choose. Remember that whole setting was at a wedding where Jesus was the guest. Now we're at the temple, and Jesus is not the guest. He takes over as the host. And he says, this is my house. This isn't how it's supposed to be treated. This is my father's house. We're going to clean things up here. He was so passionate about that. Of course, uh, what Jesus says and what Jesus does doesn't really um, line up with how the religious leaders feel. And they're pretty upset about the whole debacle that takes place. And let's look at the reaction. Here we go. John chapter 2 again. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? Can you imagine how angry they must have been? 
if God gave you authority to do this, then show us a miraculous sign to prove it. If this is really, you know, your father's house, if you have this kind of authority, then give us some miraculous sign and prove it. All right, Jesus replied. Whoa, it had to be intense. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What? they exclaimed. It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in just three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised to the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. Remember when we, again, were at the wedding with Jesus? And he turned the water into wine. And remember he said to his mother, it's not my time yet. And we said, what does all that mean? And, and we talked about how Mary couldn't always understand what her son was saying. He just said, whatever he says, do it. And I don't know what he means, right? You know, sometimes Jesus spoke in ways that, that people couldn't see and understand. Like when he was talking about raising up the temple. But afterwards, afterwards, the disciples understood exactly what he meant. He's talking about his resurrection. And Jesus is beginning to make a bit of a shift here from away from the actual institution of the temple, isn't he? He's starting to pull all of the authority to himself rather than the religious leaders, rather than an institution. And this really is what is upsetting them. This whole issue of authority. You know, there are some things to this very day that are attractive about Jesus and some things that are very unattractive about Jesus. Some things that, that draw people to him and, and other things that, that repel people away from him. It was true then, and we also see that it is true today. I mean, Jesus' words about love, we're attracted to that. Uh, his compassion and concern for people who are hurting, people who are ostracized, who are outcasts. We love that about him. Some of the words that he shares, his wisdom, is so good. But then Jesus says and does some stuff that just, you know, people have a hard time with. Like when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to Father but through me. Some people have such a hard time with that. They did then and they still do today. In fact, I read a statistic just recently again. I think I've, I shared it before with you. 70% of Americans who claim to be born again do not believe that Jesus is the only way. They believe there are other ways as well. So they're repelled when they hear something like that. Some people are repelled by Jesus' pro-life stance. Some people are repelled by Jesus' high view of morality and marriage between a man and a woman, a husband and wife. Some people are repelled about his, you know, his talk of hell and generosity and sacrifice. Jesus doesn't always fit our likes and our preferences. But I love what Tim Keller has to say about this. Commenting on this, he says, you know, why is it we treat Jesus differently? Why is it we treat God differently than we treat other issues of reality? What he means by that is, you know, why does God have to fit our preferences and our likes when in the real world, oftentimes we adapt our preferences and likes to, to things that we cannot change? And so take, for instance, driving down a road, all right? 
and the road has twists and bends and curves in that road. I don't know about you, but I don't like driving up or down mountains because of the twists and turns and bends. I prefer a straight road, but when I'm driving over a mountain, I adapt my preferences and my likes to what the road has for me. I suppose I could say, ah, I don't care if there's a curve in this road. I'm going to go straight, and I'll drive right off the cliff. That's such a picture of where so many people are today. You know, God has established the roadmap. God has established how we are to live for our own sake. And because he's a holy God, and he created us, we are his idea. But if we don't want to adapt to the way God says we are to live, he gives us the freedom to drive off the cliff. And it's a really dangerous thing when you drive off the cliff, so to speak. You see, if your God is a God who fits your likes and preferences, then Keller says you're probably worshiping a false God. And I think he's right. I think he's right. You know, I, I think about the Bible. I think about Jonah, for instance, right? I mean, Jonah had certain preferences and likes that God didn't meet. I mean, Jonah didn't want to go preach to the Ninevites, the Assyrians. Not because he, you know, didn't want them to be judged. He was afraid they'd repent, and he hated them. But God's preference was that he go and he preach. Peter, Peter didn't want to go and preach to the Gentiles. And so God gives him this vision and tells him, as he sees the sheet full of unclean animals, kill and eat. I don't want to kill and eat those things. It's not my preference. But he had to change his preferences and likes to fit that of God's. Or how about Jesus in the garden? Jesus' preference is not to go and suffer on the cross, but remember what he prays? Nevertheless, not my preference, not my likes, not my will, but Father, yours be done. Yours be done. I don't live by my preferences and likes. If I'm a follower of Christ, I'm invited to respect his preferences, his likes, which is what is best in the long run for me anyways. And that's what he invites us to, his preferences and his likes. It's all about him. It's all about his authority. Now, a couple of weekends ago, I shared with you a passage out of John chapter 1 when Jesus encounters Nathaniel. And Nathaniel says, oh, my goodness, you saw me under the fig tree. You must be the Son of God. Remember I said Jesus said this really strange thing? Remember it was in verse 51. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, you will all see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. And I said, you know, what does that mean? I said, we'll uncover what that means. Well, what it means is Jesus, in essence, is saying, if you want to be in the presence of God, if you want God to dwell with you, then you have to come to me. I'm the stairway. I'm the door. You have to go in me. You have to go through me. Because in essence, what Jesus is doing in this passage of Scripture is he's saying there in the temple, he's saying to them, I am going to become the temple. I am going to become the priest. I am going to become the sacrifice. I am going to become the altar. I am going to be 
the access to God. And that's why when Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn in two. And the Holy of Holies was exposed. In other words, now, now, anybody who receives me can come right into the presence of God better than in Eden. In chapter 4, which will start in our third season in January, we meet a woman who wants to argue with Jesus where the right place is to worship. On Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem, and Jesus says there's coming a day when it won't be in either place. Because the space where God will inhabit is going to be the human heart. Your heart and my heart. That's the awesome thing that I want you to grab onto. That God's sacred space is no longer in a tabernacle, no longer in a temple, no longer in Jerusalem or any other place. God's sacred space is you. You and I, we become his temple. And it is in our lives that his spirit wants to dwell and live. And so that takes me over to this table that is just filled with all kinds of junk and stuff. I want you to imagine for a moment that this table represents your sacred space, kind of like the temple did in the story that we looked at there in John chapter 2. I don't know about you, but my space gets cluttered very easily. And somewhere on this table representing the God space in my life actually are two symbols I chose to represent God. The cross, you know, what Christ did for us and the word of God. But as you can see, there's a lot of stuff over here. Oh, look at this, a basketball. I forgot about this. Oh my goodness, it's, uh, it needs some air. I got to take care of that thing. Oh yeah, that's cool. I forgot about that. Oh, oh cookies. Man, I, I am like a cookie hound. I, okay, I'll get those later. I love cookies. Ah, I was wondering where I set my cell phone. I hate that when I can't find it. Oh my goodness, I have 50 emails. I'll, oh my goodness, face. Look what somebody posted. This is, wait a minute, that's right. I'm supposed to be doing a message. Sorry about that. Um, what was this? Oh my goodness, I forgot to pay the visa bill. It's past due. Oh man, this is not good. Okay, I think you get the picture, right? All this stuff starts occupying our lives. And it kind of it pushes God out. And, and God is like, this is my space, Dale. This is our space to meet together. You get all this stuff. You shouldn't have to go searching for me. There they are. There, there it is. You shouldn't have to go searching for me. I don't want to just be, you know, here in the middle of all this junk. And so the question is, are you willing to let God come to your life and literally dump it all out so that all that's really left is just him and you, you and him? When you think about your life right now, when you think about it as being a sacred temple, when you think about it being his space, how cluttered is it? Do some things need to be uncluttered? You know, God helps us get our space uncluttered. And uh, one of the ways that God unclutters our space is with his word, actually. So you might want to jot this thought down. God creates a sacred space in our lives through the washing of his word. 
had this habit. I do it every morning when I get up. I wash my face for no reason with freezing cold water three times, all right? Just to kind of wake me up. And uh, I've had that habit for a long, long time. I also have this habit every day of opening God's word up and letting his word wash me. Listen to what Paul wrote in Ephesians. He said, husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy. God wants to make you holy and me. Look what he says, to make her holy and clean. Remember I said God wants a clean house. How does he make us clean? Washed by the cleansing of God's word. How are you doing at cleansing your life, letting God cleanse your life every day with his word. There's one more way that God works to clean the space out in our life, to make it a, a holy dwelling for his presence and our communion with his presence. And that is sometimes God allows trials into our lives. God creates a sacred space in our lives through the trials of life. Look what he says to his servant, James. James writes and says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, look what he says, consider it a great opportunity for joy. Now, I don't know about you, but I do not associate troubles and joy together. But James says we ought to because trouble has a way of moving us towards God, a suddenly forgetting about the clutter because the clutter is not helping anymore. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Now, if you have figured it out by now, you've been around long enough, share with me on the weekends, whether you're here in Minnesota or nearby or far away around the world. We've got friends all around the world that join us. Every weekend, you know, I love to use object lessons. And so I want to I share with you an object lesson that, that comes from coffee. Now, I got to be honest with you, um, I uh, personally do not drink coffee. I drink tea. I love tea, but I'm not a big coffee drinker. But in order to help us understand this whole idea of how God uses trials in our life, uh, I found out about French press coffee. And I found out that coffee snobs, really, they like their coffee coming from a French press, all right? So I learned all about this. I'm an expert now because I watched it several times on YouTube, okay? But what I do know is that you take coffee beans, right, and you grind them so that they're kind of coarse, and then depending on how much coffee you're going to have, all right, you, uh, you stick it in the, the little jar here, and I, like I said, I... I'm sure there's a fancy word for this, but I'm calling it a jar. And uh, I have no idea how much coffee I'm making with this, but I, I put some grounds in here, okay? And then what you do is you take uh, the hot water, okay? And uh, you, you pour it there, okay? The, the guy on YouTube I was watching was like, you have to do it carefully and gently. I mean, I was amazed how particular people are about pouring the water on the coffee. I'm just going to get it in here. I'm probably pouring it too quickly, upsetting the grounds in here, but that's okay. All right. And then I'm told you let it sit 
for four or five minutes. And the idea is that the hot water is now pulling out, it's extracting out of the coffee that you ground up its, its oils, its aromatic flavor, its taste. Depending how long you want to keep it in there will determine how strong it's going to be. And, you know, it forms like a little crust on the top. So you take some spoons and you stir it up and you pull out the extra stuff on the top. Now here it comes, all right? My favorite part, okay? Then you take this, uh, this little plunger here and you place it on and then you begin to push it down. It applies pressure, all right? As it applies pressure, there's, there's like this filter in there and the coffee, the good coffee is coming up out of that. So no more grounds are there because you've squeezed it, right? And the best is at the top. And then you just simply take your cup and you pour out that beautiful tasting coffee that you're now going to enjoy because of the press. See, what does that have to do with God refining my life or God refining your life? Well, oftentimes, it's the trials that God brings into our life that presses, right? That presses down on us and, and forces us to declutter, to begin to realize there's all this junk in my life that makes no eternal difference now that I have cancer. There's all this junk in my life that's not going to make my marriage better. There's all this junk in my life that's not going to give me a clearer mind a healthier sense of who I am and what life is all about. There's all this stuff in my life that's not helping my kids and helping my family. Now, there's so much in my life that has no bearing on eternity. It's not helping me in my walk with God. It's destroying my walk with God. It's dirtying, dirtying up that sacred space. And sometimes God allows trials in our lives to put us in a place where all that's left is him and us. You know, when God took the children of Israel out of Egypt in the wilderness, he stripped them of everything until they were totally dependent on him. And when they were full, fully dependent on him, totally dependent on him, God's power was so potent, he provided what they actually needed, and his presence was there. But when they got into the actual promised land, what did they do? They committed idolatry with the land itself. And they forgot about God, and God got pushed out. How about you right now? How about your life right now? I just want you to bow your heads with me for a moment. And I just want you to close your eyes. And I want you to imagine wherever you are right now, I want you to imagine that your life is a table. The sacred space in your life is a table. Look at that table. Visualize that table. Ask God to help you see the table. Is it filled with all kinds of clutter? Is the space in your life condensed down to an hour on a weekend? To a few minutes in the car? to a verse here and a verse there. You want God in your life. You want him to be central in your life, but he's covered up with all this other junk and all this other stuff. Has social media cluttered God out of your life? 
have friends and peers, has your job, what's on the table? Would you let God turn the table over in your life right now? Is God doing that right now? Are you going through some challenges right now, some difficulties right now? Would you let those drive you to God? Would you, through a prayer of simple repentance, turn the table over and say, Lord, forgive me for cluttering my life up with everything but you. God, I want to clear the deck. I want to start with you and you alone. Father, as we think about our lives being a sacred space that belongs for you to dwell in, show us, Lord, the clutter that we need to get rid of. I don't need to point it out, Lord, your spirit will do that. If people are asking you right now, Lord, I know your spirit's going to show them, and I pray, give us the courage, Lord, to clear the table off and to put you at the center and make Jesus the authority and the Lord of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Listen, if that has moved and spoken to you and you'd like to talk to someone about how to declutter your life spiritually speaking, you're struggling in this area then I want to encourage you, if you're at one of our campuses, to reach out to the campus pastor. If you're joining us online, email us. Let us know in the chat feature. Let us know how we can reach out to you, how we can help you, how we can encourage you. Because we want, I want you to experience the fullness of God dwelling in your life. I hope you will join us next weekend. Because next weekend we're going to be talking about what does it honestly mean to be born again? We talk about that all the time. But I'm afraid if 70% of us think that there's more than just one way to heaven, we may not understand what it means to truly be born again. See you next weekend.